I'll, uh, I'll never forget the conversation that I had uh, one Hogmanay right over there. Um, I was talking to a friend of ours called Malika. Um, we had brought her and her family, her husband and her children, along to church. And Malika's family are Hindus. And I was fascinated at first to just have this opportunity to talk to them about the, the gods of their religion. So I said to her, Malika, tell me about the gods of Hinduism. Who's your god? And she said, well, really, there are, there are four main gods, but there's really only three within them. Uh, Brahma, Shiva, and Vishnu. But there are actually as many gods and goddesses as you want to be. Anyone or anything can effectively be an incarnation of or a god. Incarnation of a god or a god itself. And she elaborated on it. It was fascinating to hear what she was explaining. And at one point I said to her, and I pointed to that pillar there, right there. That pillar, yes, that one, yes. That pillar there. And I said, so if I actually want that pillar to be my god, that would be okay in Hinduism. And she said, yes, if you want to. And then she smiled. Fascination turned to heartache in that moment. I felt for her because it, it just didn't seem to make sense to me. All these different idols, all the different practices that people were going through, bowing down to, burning incense to, leaving little portions of food out for, well, anything. Little statues, sacred animals, whatever. And then two things struck me in very, very quick succession. Um, I realized at that point, I was like, oh, I am looking down on her for her silly idolatry. And then it struck me secondly, I was like, oh, I'm actually as much of an idolater as she is. Oh, I'm not bowing down to or burning incense to or leaving little portions of food out for deities, but I have many gods. I believe in one God, but alongside him, I like to line up all my other gods, sadly, me, money, Sex, power, my children, reputation, status. Don't get me wrong, these things are not in and of themselves evil, but if I make any of these things, the thing that I follow, the thing that I find my satisfaction in, then I've made it into an idol, a God replacement. And I'm just like Malika. And I wonder if you are too. Even though we profess to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, do we follow idols too? If so, it's uh, time to choose. It's time to choose. This is what 1 Kings 18 is all about. I actually read this passage to my kids last night before they went to bed, and I asked them, what is this passage all about? And my seven-year-old said, choosing which God is the real God so that you know who to follow. And I was like, wow, yes, it is. Why didn't I see that on Wednesday? You know, and it's wonderful. It is really that simple. And so if you're taking notes tonight, this is what we're going to look at. We're going to, I'm going to show you uh, three things, really. One, uh, wavering people have a choice to make, verses 16 to 24. Uh, two, here are the two options, the next two points, dumb idols or true God, point three. So point one, wavering people have a choice to make. Uh, Israel, uh, the people chosen by God to follow him, have a choice to make in this passage. 
Uh, Ahab is the king. We looked at this last week, and he is the worst king ever. He has made Baal worship the, the national religion in Israel. And when God had rescued his people Israel from Egypt, he, he kind of dealt with them in such a way that said, my people. And uh, since Ahab has come on the throne uh, with his wife Jezebel, he's been saying, well, not so much. Uh, Baal is uh, in the hot seat now. Now, it seems like the people have gone along with it. Now, we might think, how could they have experienced all that they experienced? I mean, after all, it's not that long ago since... Well, Solomon's reign and the temple being built and the dedication in chapters uh, 7 and 8 of 1 Kings and, and the smoke filling the temple and, you know, just the, the experience of that day. How does this happen? How do people who have experienced that turn to Baal worship? Well, there are probably two reasons. There are lots of reasons, but I think there are two main reasons. Uh, one, it's what everyone else is doing, especially the rich. So don't forget, uh, Baalism was state-sponsored. If you really wanted to get along with the wealthy or get along, get ahead in life, having Baal worship on your CV as your religion uh, would go down well. Secondly, ultimately, it involved lots of sex. Um, Baal worship involved cult prostitutes. No No situation in life was so bad that it couldn't be fixed with a trip to the shrine. Now, it sounds pretty similar to the reasons why people in our country, our nation, even people in churches, might waver between God and idols. We worship things that serve us and our desires, don't we? Well, the people of Israel hadn't binned Yahweh, God, the God of Israel, altogether. They had become pluralistic, happy to worship and serve and devote themselves to other gods alongside God. Now, this is where Elijah comes in. And uh, Elijah, as I mentioned last time, is God's enough to Israel. Uh, Look with me, verse 21, here he comes. This is key for us. Elijah comes along and asks this question. As everyone gathers on Mount Carmel, uh, he gathers these representatives of Israel and asks, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. It's very straightforward. Let me tell you something about the word waver in here. In the original language, it it has a double meaning. It not only tells you what they're doing, but describes how they're doing it. So to waver in the original language here, it basically means to go between two things. That's pretty clear in the passage, and that is exactly what they're doing. They're going between two different gods, God and Baal. But it also describes the way they're doing it. The word means to hobble okay, to hobble. In other words, they're not walking freely. There is something that is hindering their gait, something that is hindering their movement. In other words, they're going between the two, but they're not doing it very well. You see what Elijah's doing for them? He is showing them with this question, using this word, that divided loyalties hinder wholehearted discipleship, whoever you choose to follow. Divided loyalties hinder wholehearted discipleship, whoever you choose to follow. So Elijah calls them, how long will you waver, hobble between these two opinions? It's time to stop being so indecisive. It's time to stop being so inconsistent. 
Now, this makes sense. Of course, it's common sense, really. I mean, imagine someone in Edinburgh said, which football team do you support? And you said, Hibs and Hearts. <laughs> it's not going to work. You cannot follow both. I mean, that's what you would say to them. You can't support both. What are you going to do on Derby Day? Okay? Well, it's just the same in relation to our worship. Um, you're going to look silly hobbling between two gods because they cannot both be gods. That is inconsistent, and we're being indecisive. You cannot follow both. Now, Christianity is all about following Jesus, and we know that our discipleship is hindered when we divide our loyalties. We know that our ability to follow God wholeheartedly is hindered by mixed devotion. You know, when we say, ah, yes, the Lord, he is our God, but actually self-gratification in its various forms, whether it's spending money at the shops or looking at stuff online, we say that other things are our gods. But Jesus told us this. He taught us this lesson already, of course, when addressing one of our idols, money. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Elijah's preaching the same message. Stop hobbling, God's people. Make a decision. This is inconsistent. Make a decision. Now, to help them and us uh, choose who to follow, he sets up a contest. That's a cracker, isn't it? It's a well-known passage. Um, I used to think of it as a real context, as a kind of sporting bout, like a boxing match taking place or something like that. But the more I've looked at it, the more I think it's kind of like a science experiment. When you look at verses 23 and 24, it's very specific about the details of what's going to happen. Elijah says, we're going to do a wee experiment. Here are the controlled variables, same materials, same layout, same instructions for both. Also, that no one can say, oh, you had an advantage in some way. And then he sets forward the test. This is what's going to settle it. Verse 24, see it? The God who answers by fire, he is God. Now, the people who had gathered that day were, well, they were a bit too quiet when he asked them the question, how long will you waver between these two opinions? How long will you go about your hobbling? But now when he sets out the terms of the experiment and says, this is how we'll know who the true God is, they say, sounds good to us. Now, one of the reasons they might be saying that is because, well, if they do have a leaning in favor of Baal, Baal was a storm god. What was Baal good at? Bringing rain, bringing lightning, okay? Water and fire, those were his things. You know, if you were playing top trumps and you had Baal, and the thing that you had to play was, you know, fire from heaven. You're like, I'm playing Baal every time. Well, you'd lose today. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Before we move on, how do we actually apply this? What, how does this apply to us today? I mean, this is a specific instruction given to Elijah. Later on in verse 36, with the way Elijah prays, it's very obvious and very clear that he's been given specific instruction to do as he's doing right now. He says, I've done everything I've been commanded to do, Lord. So this isn't saying that you should go out and challenge idolaters in our city to like bonfire showdowns, as exciting as that would be. Um, but what you can do is that you can invite people to consider who or what they're worshiping, because everybody's a worshiper of something, 
you can invite them to consider how that worship is working out for them and help them to see the kind of impact that it's having on them and on society, because the two are related. So help people to see how having money as an idol can lead you to spend all your time in the office, to neglect your family, for the accumulation of things that will wear out and never really satisfy. Or maybe you could help people see that they worship themselves and that self-idolatry is what makes them spend hours on social media, massaging their Facebook profiles so that others will look at them and think that they're wonderful, that they're beautiful, and be envious of all the places that they've been to, as they check how many likes that they get. Help them to see their pride and that they are making a God for themselves in the image of themselves. And how nobody really likes them for doing so. It's not working out well for them. Help each other, even here in Charlotte Chapel, to see the things that we cannot see in terms of our idolatries. That's why life together in this church family is so important for us. And help us to see that we cannot follow God and, well, whatever other idol you want to include in there. Help us to see the foolishness of hobbling between the two. Help us to see that actually all these idols are essentially dumb idols, mute. And that's what we see in verses 25 to 29 in point two, dumb idols. So we ask wavering people have a choice to make. Here's the first of two options, a dumb idol. So verses 25 and 29 are really an expose of what idols do to their followers. These are idols that do not speak, but actually they're very, very demanding. They promise much, but deliver nothing. Verse 24 tells us that Elijah does a gentlemanly thing first and says, after you, prophets of Baal. And then verse 26 tells us that for about three to four hours, they're calling out, oh, Baal, answer us. Baal, answer us again and again. You know, being the storm god that he was, surely a little bit of lightning wasn't too hard for him. But then you read, but there was no response. No one answered. That's the problem with man-made gods. No one answered. And then they make huge demands on you. You see what happens next? They, these, these gods, these idols of ours today and back then, as you see in this passage, demand frenetic activity. It's all about performance when it comes to idolatry. That's what you see in the, from the end of, or, or from verses 26 to 28. So 26b says, they danced around the altar that they had made. Now guess what the word danced means? Hobbled. Same word as up there. It's translated as waver, slightly different root to it, but it is the same word, hobbled. So they're not, they're not rave dancers. You know, they're not building TVs and cardboard boxes, etc. You know, that's a silly joke, never mind. Anyway, they are not raving around the sacrifice that they have made. It's not high-energy worship. Don't know whether they're feeling sheepish or just kind of somehow trying to look pious in what they do, but it doesn't work. So with a little bit of friendly encouragement, or maybe not so friendly encouragement from Elijah, they decide to ramp it up. Verse 27, he says, shout louder. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy. That word actually translates as something like indisposed. In other words, he's relieving himself. He's at the toilet, okay? Um, or he's, maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and needs to be wakened. 
That, by the way, was one of the key things that they thought was happening during times of drought. Oh, Baal must be asleep. We need to do stuff to wake him up. That's what I, this is what idol worship is like. It's frenzied activity. But here's the truth. It bleeds you dry. Whether you're worshiping some kind of religious deity or yourself or whatever other idol you've chosen to follow, this is what happens. You spend yourself, your time, your energy, your money, your concentration, your daydreams, your everything on your idol. But idols never satisfy. Never, ever satisfy. You keep on making greater and greater sacrifices that only go to show that they're not serving you. You end up serving them. Verse 29 says that these prophets continued their frantic prophesying, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Do you know why? There's no one there. There's no one there. There is truly only one true and living God, as Elijah is about to demonstrate. But again, before we move on to point three, how do we apply this today? I think we need to understand that the same goes for contemporary idolatry, money, sex, power, children, self, anything. If, they, if these become the things that we live for, the things that we sacrifice all else to pursue, we'll find that they promise much but deliver nothing, make huge demands on us but never satisfy. Oh, don't, they might please you a lot in the short term, but they won't please you in the long term. They will not satisfy. They're like, they're like pasta. You know, they always leave you hungry and wanting something else. They are nothing compared to the true gods we see in verses 30 to 46. And that's point three, the true gods. In verses 30 to 39, I love the fact that this is full of contrasts. So full of contrasts. When you see what Elijah does compared to the way that the prophets of Baal have ministered, if you like, it's fascinating to see. So it shows us that in the first instance, God does not demand frenetic activity. Oh, the prophets of Baal were pleading for hours and hours and hours. All day they did a day's work and got no answer. Elijah steps forward, prays two sentences in verses 36 and 37 that focus on God's glory and his people's repentance, two of God's favorite subjects, and the pyrotechnics begin. And God doesn't answer us according to our performance either. The prophets of Baal thought that they'd be heard because of all the different things that they were doing. But Elijah just soaked the sacrifice and the wood in water in order to prove that it was nothing to do with his performance. It was all about God's. You ever tried to light a campfire of wet wood or barbecue of damp coals? It just doesn't work. It's futile. But when God sends down fire, despite how drenched that place is, despite the fact Elijah's dug himself a nice little moat around the sacrifice, God demonstrates his ability and his power and the reality of his true presence by consuming everything, 
even vaporizing the stones in the soil. It's incredible to see. The true God also invites us to come on the basis of the covenant he's made. I think this is what's to do with, this is why Elijah's rebuilding God's altar. Making it out of 12 stones. Now remember the kingdom's divided just now. There's 10 in the north and two in the bottom. God is encouraging and has commanded Elijah to do these things and act on account of and in remembrance of the covenant, the promise that he has made with the 12 tribes. And whoosh, fire comes down. And what we also see is that the true God is not one who will bleed us dry because we know that one sacrifice is enough. The prophets of Baal started shedding their own blood, cutting themselves as was their custom. No answer. Elijah offers a sacrifice of atonement at the right time. Did you notice that? At the time of the evening sacrifice in accordance with God's law and God answered with fire. God responded. The idols didn't. No one answered. No one responded. God answered. And the experiment's complete. Who is the true God? Baal or the God of Israel? Yahweh. It's very, very obvious. And how should we respond? Well, the right way to respond to this is to turn to the one true God and to call out to him in faith and repentance. Because the fire has demonstrated this according to Elijah's prayer in verses 37 and 38, that God is turning the people's hearts back to him. Look at verse 37. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know you are you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up, well, everything. So God has done this not only to prove his existence, not only to prove that he is the one true God over and above any idol back then or today. He's showing that he's doing it to turn his people's hearts back to him. God is in the business of conversion. And God is in the business of grace. Please don't miss the fact that the fire did not fall on the people for their idolatry. It fell on the sacrifice. It could quite have easily have fallen on them. But God loves his people and seeks to turn their hearts back to him with this very gracious demonstration of his presence and his reality. We see this again and again, even in the New Testament. In 1 Thessalonians, we read that they are those who turn to God from idols to serve the true and the living gods. And if you were there on the day that those Thessalonians had believed, you might have heard them cry out what Israel cried out on this day. As we see in verse 39, they fell on their faces and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Their hearts are turning back. Now you might say, if only God sent Elijah to perform a sign like this today. Well, I want to tell you that God doesn't need to do that today because God has already gone one better than sending an Elijah. Instead of sending a prophet, 
he sent us his one and only son, Jesus. He is the new and better prophet, proclaiming the foolishness of today's idolatry. He is the new and better Elijah, stepping forward to pray that God would prove his uniqueness and turn his people's hearts to him. How? Through a sacrifice offered in the evening, just as the timing fits with exactly the time that Jesus died on the cross. Because instead of putting a sacrifice on the altar in the temple, Jesus made himself the sacrifice. He put himself in the line of fire, taking God's judgment upon himself so that people who cry out, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, might be saved, might be forgiven of all their idolatry, and might find the joy of knowing the one true and living God. So what's the answer for us? Follow him. How long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you hobble dance between two gods? If Jesus is Lord, follow him. If you are your God, go your own way. If sex is your God, crack on. Don't be inconsistent. Choose today. Who will be your God? But be aware of this, as this passage shows us in the final section between 40 and 46, just quickly, he will judge those who don't choose him, but he will bless those who do. Verse 40 makes uncomfortable reading, doesn't it? For us commentators, I've read so many commentators this week who try and explain this away. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had brought them down to the Kishon Valley, where he was fed with uh, watered in the last chapter, and slaughtered there. People look at that and say, oh, there's a problem, there's a problem. But the text isn't the problem. The problem is all ours. You see, for God, leading people away from him towards idols is the worst conceivable crime in existence. To God, that isn't sad. That is obscenely appalling and utterly hateful towards other human beings. Because when you love people, you want what's best for them. And in God's eyes, the best thing that you can possibly want for anyone is for them to come to know and love the one true and living God. Well, these prophets of Baal and of Ashtoreth, who sat around Jezebel's table, well, they face God's judgment. I wonder if your view of God allows for him to be true to his own promise to judge and rightly jealous for his own glory. It's important for us to think that through. If you've never heard of this before, talk about it with, with a mature Christian. Talk about it with someone who can explain this to you because Revelation shows us that this isn't just something that's in the past. There's a future judgment to come as well. But we must realize that as well as the fact that God will judge those who don't choose to follow Jesus, he will bless those who do. This is what verses 41 to 45 are all about. It's God turning on the rain. Now, without this experiment, without this contest, people might have said, oh, thanks, Baal. <laughs> he must have woken up. 
But there's no doubt with the way it all happened, Elijah prayed as he was instructed in accordance not only with the sacrifice, not only with the fire, but also here in 41 and following with the rain. With the rain. And he prayed. He prayed seven times. You see that? He actually had to persist. He knew God was going to turn on the rain. We'd seen that in verses 1 and 2 from the reading earlier. And he said, it was at the seventh time of asking his servant to go and look out that he started to see the rain cycle of, oh, evaporation, condensation, precipitation, begin. And God answered just as he said he would. And that rain, trust me, after three and a half years of doubt, is unquestionably a mark of God's blessing. It's actually the flip side of Deuteronomy 11, which we looked at last time. The drought was a sign of judgment. It was a warning to them. The rain was a sign of blessing. And the crucial thing that turned it around, yes, Elijah's prayer, but the fact that they had cried out, the Lord, he is God's. The Lord, he is God's. So follow him. He is the one true and living God. And know that even if you don't choose to follow him tonight, he will pursue you in some way. Verse 46 is fascinating, really. Here is, you know, Elijah does a Usain Bolt in this passage, doesn't he? You know, the, the, the chariot of Ahab, he already gives them a head start. You know, off you go. I was cycling with my kids yesterday down at Cramond, and I was giving them a, a head start on something, then I was trying to power past them, you know. And it was great fun, but it's kind of like what Elijah did. They were pedaling away as hard as they could. He was not pedaling. <laughs> and his chariot was heading off as fast as he could for home, Jezreel. But Elijah tucked in his cloak, put on his Nikes, and went for it and arrived there before him. Now, the people have responded, remember, but Ahab has not. And I don't know what's happened here. Dale Ralph Davis says, I can't help but wonder if Elijah ran ahead, and as Ahab pulls up to his front gate, he sees Elijah leaning on the gatepost watching. Ahab's mouth is agape. How did he get here? But the look says only one thing. What are you going to do, Ahab? You also have a choice to make. The bedroom light is on. Jezebel is home. She's still up. You've got explaining to do. All of her dinner guests are goners. Will you listen to the prophet? Or will you go to bed with the devil? It's a choice we all face. Will we follow God? the one true and living God who will prove himself to you again and again and ultimately on that day when Christ returns and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord or will you reject him and follow the man-made expressions of the idols you choose to follow that will drive you into the dust and in the end cannot save you who are you going to choose my encouragement to you is to follow Jesus in Luke 9 he said two things he said I must die 
He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be, re be raised to life. And he did. He died to take away our sins, even our idolatrous sins, that we might have full and free forgiveness. But he says, to follow him, we must die too. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit your very self? How long will you waver? Follow him. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Let's pray.